Hello and welcome to episode 27 of ERRX. Last week in part 1 of our Angiotensin 2 mini grand round series, we reviewed the findings of the Athos 3 trial, as well as my own personal experiences with using the agent. In part 2 of our series, we talk about potential side effects of Angiotensin 2, as well as some important implications of Angiotensin 2 use in the setting of COVID. In Athos 3, adverse drug events of any grade and serious adverse events were similar between the groups, and study infusion was discontinued at similar rates and for similar reasons, including multi-organ system failure and cardiac arrest. But there is some controversy about these adverse drug events, particularly when we look at rates of thrombosis. Per the published Athos 3 trial, only three patients in the angiotensin 2 group and zero patients in the placebo group developed a DVT. Although supplementary materials didn't discuss this any further, other reporting states that the rate of arterial and venous thrombosis was actually 13% in the angiotensin 2 group versus 5% in the placebo group. And although the authors of Athos 3 didn't mention rates of patients on DVT prophylaxis, data from the manufacturer shows that more patients in the angiotensin 2 group than the placebo group were on antithrombotic medications, which makes the higher risk of thrombosis even a bigger concern. That's why the FDA advises DVT prophylaxis along with angiotensin 2 use in your patients. Is this increased thrombosis rate just due to chance, or do we actually have a plausible mechanism here? While the exact reason for this potentially higher rate of thrombosis is unclear and deserves further study, we do know from clinical trials that angiotensin 2 can be a mediator of thrombosis. This is evidenced by data showing that hypertensive patients treated with an ACE inhibitor or an ARB have lower rates of thrombosis, possibly due to less angiotensin 2 floating around their bodies. We also have cool studies in mice where they showed that mice given angiotensin 2 infusions had accelerated rates of thrombosis. But how does this happen? I'll post an image of the angiotensin pathway onto the ERRX Podcast Instagram page, as well as ERRXPodcast.com, but I'll try to briefly explain the mechanism here. When angiotensin-converting enzyme 1, or ACE1, cleaves angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, angiotensin 2 binds the angiotensin 2 type 1 receptor, which causes, as we know from Athos 3, vasoconstriction, and an increase in blood pressure and MAP, but it also causes fibrosis, hypertrophy, and inflammation. Think of this as the bad pathway in the setting of thrombosis. However, a separate enzyme, one that maybe wasn't mentioned enough in our education, called angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, or ACE2, exists near the surface of blood vessels and tissues of the lungs, brain, heart, and kidneys. Opposite of ACE1, ACE2 cleaves angiotensin 2 into angiotensin 1-7. Now angiotensin 1-7 is a vasodilator, has anti-inflammatory effects, and is an antithrombotic through its actions on the MAS receptor. Think of this as the good pathway, reducing rates of thrombosis. But although ACE2 sounds like just the thing we need... Unfortunately, ACE2 is also an entry point for coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2, 
which binds ACE2 and is then internalized into the cell. As we all know by now, one tragic outcome of COVID-19 is thrombosis. One thought is that as more SARS-CoV-2 viruses bind ACE2, less ACE2 is available for angiotensin 1 to go down the good pathway and simultaneously means that more angiotensin 1 gets converted to angiotensin 2, which we just learned causes thrombosis, oxidative stress, and inflammation. As you may be aware, there is some current controversy on what to do with patients with COVID who are also on ACE inhibitors or ARBs. A deep dive into this is beyond the scope of this episode, but suffice it to say that most experts and guidelines advocate continuing ACE inhibitor or ARB therapy in these patients, unless of course they are hypotensive. And this is due to the fact that these agents reduce the amount of angiotensin II and its associated bad effects on thrombosis and other things. These agents also cause upregulation of ACE2. So that leaves the question, is more ACE2 a good thing through its effects on reducing the amount of angiotensin II and increasing the amounts of angiotensin 1-7? Or is it a bad thing as it acts as an entry point of SARS-CoV-2 into cells? And if we like ACE2's effects on reducing the amount of angiotensin 2, what are we doing actively infusing angiotensin 2 into patients? Those are the questions that some experts have, and one day we may have the answer. So at this time, there exists a plausible mechanism and a decent amount of data that angiotensin 2 may be harmful for patients, especially in patients with COVID who are at a higher risk of thrombosis at baseline. However, we also have opposite data showing that angiotensin 2 infusions work well in patients with COVID and septic shock, so the jury is still out on this one. If that wasn't enough, infectious complications are also a concern. Patients on angiotensin 2 were more likely to have more than one infection, and more infectious events occurred overall in the angiotensin 2 group versus the placebo group. Also, those receiving angiotensin 2 had higher rates of fungal infections per the package insert. Once again, the mechanism is unclear, but ACE1 is thought to increase resistance to infection, and giving angiotensin 2 could lead to downregulation of ACE1, making our patients more susceptible to infections. There is also a concern that angiotensin 2 can promote tachycardia and delirium, but rates of atrial fibrillation were the same between groups and although delirium rates were higher in the angiotensin 2 group at 5.5% versus 0.6%, the overall rate of delirium was low at 3.1%. These two side effects are questionable, and we have to remember that all of the side effects discussed occurred in a short period of time. If you remember, the maximum duration of infusion was 7 days, with a large majority of patients getting the drug for less than 3 days. Overall, we've learned that angiotensin II infusions will help your patients in septic shock by improving their blood pressure and MAP and allowing you to wean off of background vasopressors a majority of the time. But remember, there was no effect on mortality rates, and angiotensin II comes with a few concerning side effects that developed in a relatively short period of time. This can be especially devastating in the setting of covid but we have to keep in mind that at this time, the data is still inconclusive, 
And although most recommend continuing ACE inhibitor or ARB therapy in patients with COVID, this obviously does not apply to hypotensive patients in septic shock. These patients need adequate organ perfusion, and as a matter of fact, angiotensin II in the setting of COVID has been shown to be beneficial in case reports and retrospective studies. My overall view is that I'm convinced that angiotensin II probably causes higher rates of adverse drug events, including thrombosis and infections. But I wouldn't rule out its use as a third- or fourth-line vasopressor for critically ill patients running out of options, or in the setting of COVID quite yet. If you have a patient who remains hypotensive despite two or three vasopressors, just make sure that they are on adequate DVT prophylaxis and go ahead and try angiotensin II. It may be very beneficial for your patient. In the meantime, we will all await pending studies using recombinant ACE2 infusions, angiotensin type 1 receptor blockade, and ACE inhibitor or ARB continuation or discontinuation in patients with COVID. As always, thank you for your time. Please check out our website, errxpodcast.com. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter, which when we get enough subscribers, we'll start sending out key points from previous episodes and other monthly tidbits. <laughs>